Lord, we ask for your favor today upon the opening up of the word. And I ask, Lord, for a personal blessing and anointing. A, um, would you come upon me in a way that I can sense, Lord, that you're going to speak through me, that you are going to just use me to bring life to your people. Oh, I think about these people you brought here today, Lord. Your sheep, the sheep of your pasture. The ones whom you have loved from all eternity and chosen to be with you forever. Lord, would you pour out your grace upon them today and encourage their hearts that they can be used of you in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an old legend that says that after Jesus died and rose again and ascended back to heaven, the angel Gabriel met him and had a discussion with Jesus. And Gabriel said, So Lord, how did it go down there when you were on the earth? Did they make you king? And Jesus said, No, no, they didn't make me king. And so Gabriel says, Well, did they worship you? Well, a few did, but most didn't. Well, certainly they all believed in you then, right? No, actually very few actually believed in me. Well, well, Lord, then what happened? They crucified me. Well, certainly now that you've been crucified and risen from the dead, they all believe in you, right? And they all understand. No, actually, almost nobody believes in me and almost nobody understands. Well, Lord, what's your plan then? How are you going to make sure that the message about what you did for them gets out into all the world and everybody hears? He says, well, before I left, I chose 12 men and I trained them and I commanded them before I ascended back to heaven to go into all the world and preach this gospel to every living creature. But Lord, I know a little bit about human beings and they're weak and they're sinful and they, they're failing. I mean, what if they let you down? What if they fail you? What's your other plan, Lord? And Jesus replies to Gabriel, I have no other plan. So we're going to look at the 12 men that Jesus chose he invested his all in these men. He has no other plan B, and he give, he's given them the task of reaching the world for Jesus Christ. And the reason we're sitting here today is because of those 12 men. Because they passed down the faith of Jesus Christ from one generation, and that generation passed it to the next, and we have received it from a previous generation. So we're going to look at the master's men today. I want to introduce you to the master's men. Weak, sinful men who ended up turning the world upside down. Notice in your text, it says, It was at this time that he went off to spend the whole night in prayer to God. It was at this time. Well, what time? What time is Luke talking about? We've been working our way through Luke, and one of the themes we've been seeing over and over is the increasing hostility and tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Right? We've seen that, seen that over and over. Back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes to his hometown in Nazareth and he preaches in the synagogue and he lets them know that he is the Messiah and that God is free to bless and to bestow his grace on anybody he chooses, including the Gentiles over the Jews. And when they hear that, they get so mad at him that they try to throw him off of a cliff to kill him. It wasn't Jesus' time, so he passes through their midst. Then in chapter 5, 
Jesus is becoming more popular. And there's such a crowd gathered around the house that he's in as he's teaching that a man who's paralyzed can't get through and he needs to be touched by Jesus to be healed. So his four good friends somehow get him on top of the roof of the house, dig a hole through the roof and drop him down right into the midst. And Jesus looks at that man and he says, My son, your sins are forgiven you. And the religious leader says, he's blaspheming because nobody can forgive sins but God alone. Then later on, some of the disciples of the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, why don't your disciples fast like we fast? There's sort of this critical complaining spirit within their hearts. Later on, the Pharisees see that Jesus' disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath day and rubbing it in their hands and popping it in their mouth and having a little snack on the way to the synagogue. And they start to criticize Jesus about that. They say, why are you doing what's not lawful to be done on the Sabbath day? And later on, Jesus sees a man with a withered hand. He's teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath and he deliberately calls that man to the front, in front of everybody, and he heals the man on the Sabbath day. And it was at that point that they became so angry that they went off together and they began to plot how they could kill him and destroy him. So there's this increasing tension that's developing through the Gospel of Luke between Jesus and the religious leaders. Now Jesus knows that his time is short. He doesn't have that much time on the earth before he's going to die. He can see the handwriting on the wall. He knows he came into the world to die for sinners. It's up, it's up at, around the bend. And so he has to prepare some men to take over for him when he's gone. And so that's why it says it was at this time that he went up into the mountain. He spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when he came down from the mountain, he had heard from God as to who he was to choose to be his 12 men. And then he begins to pour his life into these 12 men. Now, there's two questions I want to ask today. Number one, who were the master's men? Who were they? Number two, what did Jesus do for them? First of all, who were the master's men? Let's take a look at our text. It says, Simon, whom he also named Peter. There are four different lists of apostles in the New Testament. We have a list in Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts chapter 1. And in every single list of the apostles, guess whose name shows up first? Simon Peter's. In fact, over in Matthew 10 verse 2, it says, The first, Simon, who was also called Peter. There was something a little bit different about Peter. Peter was a leader among leaders. You might call him a first among equals. He shared the same authority as all the rest of the apostles, but he was a spokesman for the rest. On the day of Pentecost, it wasn't John or James or Andrew that stood up to preach. It was Peter. God had uniquely gifted and called Peter with a gift of leadership and a gift of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it was Peter who stood up to preach. Now... With some of the names we're going to read this morning, there's very, very little information we have about them. In some instances, the only information we have about them is their name. We have nothing else. But when it comes to Peter, we have scads of information. In fact, his name comes up 180 times in the New Testament. That's more than the 11 other apostles combined. In fact, Peter is even mentioned more than Paul in the New Testament. So there's something that God wants us to learn from this man. 
His name, Simon, means wavering one. Jesus gave him the nickname Rock. Isn't that cool? You're shifting sand. I'm going to make you into the rock. And Jesus liked to give nicknames to people. He liked to give new names because he knew what he was going to do in people's lives. So, Simon, wavering one, you're going to become the rock. And we see the rock there in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, the Spirit was poured out upon the disciples. A great crowd gathered. They heard them speaking in other tongues as the Lord was giving them utterance. And Peter stands up and begins to explain to them what's going on. And he doesn't just explain what's going on. He dovetails into a beautiful message about Jesus Christ. He especially proclaims Jesus as the risen and exalted one. And 3,000 people are converted and baptized and added to the church on that single day. That was Peter who did that. Next chapter, he goes up to the temple to pray with John. He sees a man who had never walked in his, in his entire life. He was a beggar. He couldn't work, and so he just lifted out his hand and begged from people going into the temple. And he said, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And Peter says, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And he reached out his hand and lifted him up. And as he did that, the man received strength in his ankles. And he stood up on his feet and he began to walk. And then he began to run. And then he began to leap and praise God. That was Peter the Rock that did that. In the next chapter, he's arrested and he's brought before the Sanhedrin. And this same Peter boldly preaches to the Sanhedrin. He says, there is salvation in no one else other than Christ. In fact, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Then we find him in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, when two individuals, Ananias and Sapphira, had come up with this scheme of how they were going to tell the church that they'd sold this piece of land for such a price and they'd given so much of it to the church, and they were lying. And somehow the Holy Spirit let Peter know that that was going on, and so he called him out on it. He looked them straight in the face and he said, um, he said to Sapphira, the men that have just carried your husband out and buried him, they're going to carry you out as well. And she fell down dead under the judgment of God. Later in the same chapter, Peter was so revered and respected within Jerusalem's limit that people would, would, would bring the sick out into the streets and they'd lie them on cots hoping that just Peter's shadow would fall on them because they believed if I can just have the shadow of Peter fall on me, I believe I'll be healed. Later on we find him healing a man named Aeneas who was lame and raising him up. He raises Tabitha from the dead. He goes to Cornelius and his household and he preaches the gospel and the whole household is converted and baptized in water and baptized in the Spirit. Later on, he's arrested, put in prison, and then miraculously delivered by an angel. He was a rock, wasn't he? He was a rock. But how did Jesus find this rock? What was he like when Jesus found him? Well, he had a foot-shaped mouth. <laughs> he was impetuous. He was always blurting out the wrong thing at the wrong time. Do you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus and Peter, James, and John go up to the mountain and Jesus is transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and Moses and Elijah appeared with him 
And Peter just blurts out, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Why don't we make three tabernacles? We'll make one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You remember what God says? (laughs) Shut up, basically. (laughs) This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, shut your trap and just listen to what Jesus has to say. Stop talking, Peter. (laughs) Just listen. (laughs) On another occasion, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem where he would suffer and die and then rise from the dead. And Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. And he says, God forbid it, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. Do you remember Jesus' response? Get thee behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. For you're not setting your mind on man's interests, or God's interests, you're setting your mind on man's interests. So Peter had this bad habit of just kind of blurting out the wrong thing at the wrong time, and Jesus had to continually uh, correct him. In fact, he's most well-known, isn't he, for at the end of of Jesus' life, when he was about to go to the cross, of actually turning into a coward, and denying Jesus three times uh, before the cock crowed that morning. So, Jesus found this man who was impetuous, who was kind of just blurting out whatever came into his mind before he thought, and he took a man like that and made him into a rock. And maybe some of you can relate to Peter. Is anybody here that likes to talk a lot, but you've got a heart as big as the world? and you find yourself saying things before you speak, and then you're embarrassed about it later, maybe you can relate to Peter. Hey, if God can use Peter, he can use you. God likes to choose people that are wavering ones and turn them into rocks. Now, the next guy on our list is Andrew, his brother. Andrew, his brother. The one thing I love about Andrew is wherever you find him in the Bible, he's bringing someone to Jesus. He was the one that brought his brother Peter to Jesus. Later on, we find him bringing a little boy who has five biscuits and a couple of sardines to Jesus. And Jesus takes those and multiplies them and feeds 5,000 people. And there's basketfuls left over when he's done. And then later on in John chapter 12, it's Andrew that brings these Greeks to Jesus. He's always bringing someone to Jesus. But the interesting thing about Andrew is that he was content just to kind of be in the background. He's in the shadow of his older brother. In fact, he's introduced in John chapter 1 as Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Have you ever been introduced as so-and-so's husband or so-and-so's brother or sister? You know, you got an older brother who's the star and you just, oh, that's so-and-so's brother, so-and-so's sister. Well, that's Andrew. But I love his quiet humility. His, it seems like he's perfectly content just to be in the background and do his thing serving the Lord, bringing people quietly to Jesus, not taking credit for it. Maybe we've got some Andrew types here today. You don't want to be out in the front. You don't like the limelight. You don't push yourself forward. But you love to be serving the Master, seeking to bring others to Jesus. That's a great, great thing. Then we've also got James and John. Do you remember who Jesus nicknamed them as? The Sons of Thunder. (laughs) Where do you suppose they got that nickname? In Luke chapter 9, there's an interesting story when Jesus and his disciples are going up through Samaria to Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the most direct route was through Samaria, so that's the way they were going. And Jesus sent a couple of his guys ahead of him to prepare lodging for the night. 
But when the Samaritans heard that Jesus and his boys were going through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, which is the Jewish capital, you see, Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. They didn't talk to each other. They hated each other's guts, basically. And the Samaritans found out that these Jews are coming through Samaria. They said, no way, we're not giving you lodging. Uh-uh. And when James and John heard that they had said that to the master, they got really upset, and they said, Lord, just let us command fire to come down and consume them on the spot. I mean, what an evangelistic strategy, right? We'll, we'll win these people to Christ, and we'll do it. If they reject Jesus, Lord, burn them up, you know. But that was them. They were the sons of thunder. So you Clint Eastwood types probably like James and John, you know. They've got tempers. They lose their temper. Anybody here have a bad temper? You can lose your temper quickly. Maybe you can relate to these James and John. But the really great thing about John is when you get to the very end of your Bible in 1 John, what's the theme that John loves to talk about the most? Love. He's the apostle of love. In fact, tradition says that when he was a very old man and couldn't even walk anymore, they would pick him up and bring him to the front of the church and set him down in a chair. And he couldn't really say much at that point, but what he did say was, Little children love one another, and they'd carry him off. That was his message. He, became, he went from the, the son of thunder to the son of love, one who just encouraged everybody to love one another. He wrote not only the Gospel of John, but 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And James went on to write the book of James. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm wrong on that. James was the first martyr of the church. In Acts chapter 12, he has his head cut off with the sword by Herod uh, there in, in Acts chapter 12. So this is James and John. Philip. The next man in our list. Philip. The thing we know about Philip is that he's the one that brought Nathaniel to Jesus. He's a little bit like Andrew because he likes to bring others to Jesus too. So Philip brought Nathaniel. We also know that it was Philip who said um, to the Lord, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus responds, Have you been so long with me, Philip? And you still don't get it? You don't understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Philip was a little bit thick, I think. A little bit thick-headed. Difficult to get things through to Philip. You could tell him again and again and again and he wouldn't get it. Anybody relate to that guy here? Maybe any Phillips? Who, spiritual truth has a hard time sticking with you. Well, take heart. God used a Philip. He can use you. And the next one on the list is Bartholomew. Bartholomew is really not a name so much as a title because... Anybody know what bar means in Hebrew? The son of. So, really, Bartholomew is son of Talmai. The name that he usually went by was Nathaniel. He's our Nathaniel from John chapter 1. When Philip said, hey, you've got to come. I think I've met the Messiah. You've got to see Jesus, who's from Nazareth. Remember his response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was a skeptic at heart. There was a bit of a skepticism within Nathaniel's heart. Um, anybody a skeptic here? I mean, you don't believe anything when somebody tells you. You have to analyze it. You have to have it proven to you. I'm a bit of a skeptic myself. <laughs> I can relate to Nathaniel. Matthew. We were introduced to Matthew a few weeks ago. I love Matthew the tax collector. 
the traitor. Everybody hated him. He was distrusted. Couldn't testify in a court of law because he was a tax collector. If you're a good Jew, you would stay away from Matthew. You wouldn't talk to him. You wouldn't have anything to do with him because he was a tax collector. He took money from you and gave it to the hated Romans. Traitor. But Jesus walked deliberately up to that guy that everybody else rejected and he said, I want you, Matthew. Follow me. Everybody else has rejected you. I want you. Come be my follower. And Matthew came and followed him. Anybody here relate to a Matthew? You feel like you're just kind of on the outskirts. You're just kind of looked down on by others. You don't seem to fit in. Jesus wants you. He wants to call you. Thomas. Thomas is an interesting guy. Three times we find dialogue between Thomas and the Lord. In John 11, Jesus says that uh, Lazarus was in Bethany and he had gotten sick. He'd heard about him getting sick and he deliberately stayed two days longer. And then after those two days, he said, we need to go and wake Lazarus up out of sleep. And his disciples said, well, if he's sleeping, he's going to wake up, Lord. And the Lord had to spell it out to them. No, what I mean is he's dead and I have to raise him. But they were shocked that Jesus was thinking about going right back to Bethany, which is right next to Jerusalem. And what had happened right before he left Jerusalem was that they wanted to stone him to death. And he said, they were shocked and appalled and astonished that Jesus would plan on going straight back to the place where he almost got executed. And so Thomas goes and says to the Lord, let us go with him that we also may die with him. So what does that tell you about Thomas? He's a loyal, a loyal disciple. He's a true man. He was willing, I, I'm sure he fully expected that if they went back to Jerusalem and Jesus dies, that he was willing to take his place with Jesus and die with him. I love that about Thomas. But when we come to John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, You know the way where I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way you're going, and we don't know how to get there either. And it gave Jesus an opportunity to say to him, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So he was loyal, but he was also inquisitive. When the Lord said these puzzling statements, he wanted to know what he was talking about. So he'd question him about him. But of course, the thing that he's most famous for is that he was a doubter. Chapter 20 of the book of John. Jesus has risen from the dead. He had come and revealed himself to some of the apostles, but Thomas wasn't there. And the apostles said, hey, we've seen the Lord. He's risen. And Thomas says, wait a minute. Now, I don't know what's going on, but you couldn't have seen the Lord. He's dead. Unless I see the nail prints in his hands and the gash in his side where that spear went through, I'm not going to believe and then about a week later, Jesus appears and Thomas is there. And he says, come here, Thomas. Take your finger and put it into the nail prints in my hand. Take your hand and put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving anymore, but believing. And you remember how Thomas responds? My Lord and my God. So he's loyal. He's inquisitive. He's an initial doubter, but he becomes a full-fledged professing follower of Jesus Christ, confessing that Jesus is not just Lord, but Jesus is God in human flesh. 
Great example to us. And then we have this guy named James, the son of Alphaeus. The second James amongst Jesus' disciples. It can get confusing with these names because there's all kinds of James in your Bible. We've got James, the brother of John, and he was the son of Zebedee. That's why they called him the son of Alphaeus, just to make sure you didn't mix them up. The sons of Zebedee, but then you've got James, the son of Alphaeus. James, the son of Zebedee, was martyred in Acts chapter 12. There's another James that was the Lord's brother, or half-brother, this is the James that wrote the book of James. And by tradition it says that he was cast off the pinnacle of the temple and he was clubbed to death with a fuller's club. That's how he met his martyr's end. But this is not that James either. This is the second James that was a follower of Jesus during his lifetime. He's called James the son of Alphaeus. And in some of the other gospels he's called James the less. Now we're not sure why he was called the less, but my particular hunch is that he was smaller, shorter, less in stature than the other James. So we've got big James and little James following Jesus. Hey, big James, what do you think? You know, so I'm sure that's how they probably talk to each other. Don't you love the nicknames that are going on here? Little James, Rock, Sons of Thunder, and we're going to meet another guy next, the Zealot, that was his nickname, Simon, who was called the Zealot. You see, the zealots in the first century were political, right-winged radicalists. They wanted to overthrow Rome. They hated the Romans. And they were famous for carrying these, cloak, these uh, daggers in their cloaks. And if they met a Roman official in a dark alley somewhere, they would pull out their dagger and they'd thrust it into the guy's heart and leave him bleeding to death in the streets. It was their way of trying to overthrow Rome and restore the kingdom to Israel. What do you think would have happened if Simon the Zealot met Matthew before they became disciples? Matthew could have had his untimely end by some kind of a, a dagger in his heart. But here Jesus chooses a Matthew who worked for the Romans and Simon who hated the Romans. You ever wonder what kind of dinner conversation they'd have if these two guys are sitting next to each other? I'm sure it got stirred up. The conversation probably turned to hot arguments. So Simon the Zealot was there. And then it says Judas, the son of James. So not only is there two James as disciples, there two, there's two Judases. But because there was such a stigma connected to the name Judas... They usually called him Thaddeus. So if you look at the other list of apostles, Thaddeus is the one that's mentioned instead of Judas. So he went by Thaddeus most of the time. And then finally, we have Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. In every one of the lists, Simon Peter's name is first, and guess whose name is last? Judas Iscariot. And in every single list, they say the one who betrayed him or the traitor. What can we learn about Judas Iscariot? It's interesting that Jesus had a half-brother. Not only did he have a half-brother named James, he had another half-brother named Judas. He's the one that wrote the book of what? Jude. And the early church shortened his name from Judas to Jude so that he would avoid the stigma of being connected to Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. Not many people are naming their little kids Adolf anymore, are they? 
There's a stigma connected to the name. And they avoided the name of Judas, if at all possible. Now, why would Jesus choose Judas Iscariot? Was it because he didn't know that Judas was going to betray him? He had gone up into the mountain and he had prayed all night long. And he had come down the next day and deliberately chosen 12 men, one of them being Judas. Did he know Judas was going to betray him? Well, in John 6, 70, Jesus says, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He knew. He knew from the beginning. Or in John 17, 12, this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. The night before he's going to go to the cross, he's praying to his father. And he says to his father, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. So not one of them perished, but who? The son of perdition. Do you know what that means? Perdition? It means damnation. The son of damnation. Why? So that the scriptures would be fulfilled. In other words, the scriptures foretold that there would be one who would betray Jesus Christ. In Matthew 26, 23, Jesus says, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he would never have been born. Why would it have been good for Judas to never have been born? Because right now he's suffering in hell and he will be there for all eternity. So it would be a lot better if he'd never even been born than to have to end up being in conscious eternal torment in a place called the lake of fire. The betrayer was foretold in Scripture. Jesus knew it was going to happen, yet he chose him deliberately. And because it was foretold that Judas would be the one who would be, be, betray Christ, um, does that mean that he was guiltless? Does that mean there was nothing he could do about it? I mean, does that mean that he was not held responsible for betraying Christ? No. Not at all. Because Jesus said it would have been good for that man if he'd never been born. God is going to punish Judas because Judas deliberately made a choice of his own will. Nobody put a gun to his back and said, betray Christ. He made the decision freely. And so he's going to be held responsible for that crime. Now, we could make the mistake of thinking that Judas was a true believer in Jesus. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus did call him to be a disciple, but he never called him to salvation. We know that because in John 13.10, Jesus said, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Eleven of those disciples were clean. They had been cleansed of their sin. They had come into the grace of Christ and experienced cleansing and forgiveness. But Judas never had. He was still filthy. He was still in his sins. He was called the son of perdition, the son of damnation. And in Acts 1.25, 
the Bible says that he went to his own place. He didn't go to God's place in heaven, he went to his own place. So Judas forever stands as a warning to church members. Just because you profess to be a Christian doesn't mean anything. There's a big difference between professing to be a Christian and possessing the grace of God in truth. And we can make a horrible mistake by claiming to be something that we're not. Remember on the last day, Jesus is going to say to many people, many people are going to claim to be Christians, Lord, haven't I done this in your name and done that in your name? And he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So he stands as a, as a warning, especially a warning to leaders within the church. Did you know there can be pastors and elders that are not even saved? Whitfield, in his day, during the time of the First Great Awakening, was constantly reminding us and reminding the crowds that he preached to that it doesn't matter if you're a pastor. It doesn't matter if you're a leader. What you need is to be saved by the grace of Christ. And it got him into a lot of trouble. A lot of the pastors hated his guts because he would warn them, make sure of your calling and election. But here Judas was involved in the inner circle of disciples. What a privileged position, right? Man, to spend three years with Jesus, with 11 other guys, living with him, seeing how he lived, watching his blameless life, watching him raise people from the dead and walk on water and do miracles. And then Jesus gave him the power to cast out demons and heal the sick. I'm convinced that Judas had the same power the other 11 had. He had these graces and blessings from Jesus himself. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. But yet Judas finally was cast into hell as someone who never had the grace of Christ himself, was never forgiven, was never a true follower from the heart of Christ. So those were the master's men. And I wonder if you can relate to one of these guys. I hope it's not Judas Iscariot. I hope it's one of the other 11. The good thing is that with all their faults and failings, Jesus used these guys to turn the world upside down, to shake the world for Jesus Christ and set up his kingdom on the earth. Let me just ask you this. Would you have chosen these guys if you wanted to turn the world upside down? Who do we have here? We've got an impetuous loudmouth, two brothers with bad tempers, a skeptic, a rip-off artist, a doubter, a political radical, and a traitor. Pretty good bunch to choose if you want to change the world, right? Yet these are the guys Jesus deliberately chose. You wouldn't find them in the who's who of first century Jews, would you? They're weak and sinful men. They're ordinary guys. And that's why we love them so much. Because all of us, right? Is there any f people here that you say, I'm not ordinary, I'm super special. We're just common, ordinary people. And so were they. There was no Pharisee among them. There was no scribe. There was no priest. There was no member of the Sanhedrin in their midst. There was no Hebrew scholar. These guys are fishermen, for crying out loud. <laughs> They're tax collectors and fishermen. Like today, they might be workers at McDonald's and garbage collectors and window cleaners. <laughs> They're ordinary, common people. But God, through Jesus Christ, chose these men to be those who would change the world forever. They weren't the movers and shakers of the first century. You'd never see them on lifestyles of the rich and famous, would you? 
Their picture's never going to adorn the cover of People magazine. They're not the Bill Gates and the Donald Trumps and the Barry Bonds and the Tom Cruises of the world. These are the no-names. Nobody knew who these guys were. But yet Jesus chose the no-names, the common, ordinary people to do a mighty work. Now, why did he do that? Well, let me read Scripture to answer for you. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. God wants to receive the glory for what He's doing in the world and He doesn't want people stealing the glory. Now, if Jesus had chosen the Donald Trumps and the Barry Bonds and the people like that of the first century... Everyone would say, well, I know how they were able to get that job done. Well, look who they were. Look at their money. Look at their ability. Look at their talents. He wanted to take a bunch of nobodies with nothing and transform them into world changers. And that's exactly what he did. In 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. There were not many... I'm sorry. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. He's chosen the things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are. How come? so that no man may boast before God. That's why. So that none of us could ever boast. So, do we have any people today who would call yourself wise, mighty, noble? How many would call yourself foolish, weak, base, and despised? <laughs> that's, that's pretty much me. But praise God, because those are the kind of people the Lord loves to choose. So that the surpassing greatness would be of Him and not of ourselves. So that no man would boast in His sight. If you knew of a surgeon, well-known, world-famous surgeon, who is using state-of-the-art technological advanced equipment worth millions and millions of dollars, and he has these patients that come up with, in with these brain tumors. And with this great, awesome, expensive equipment, he's able to, to extract those tumors and they get better and they get well. You say, well, that's pretty neat. The surgeon's all right, but look at that machinery that he's using. But if he uses a can opener and a pair of pliers, you're going to go, look at that surgeon. What's, what, what's he able to do with a can opener and a pair of pliers? Folks, we're the can opener. We're the pair of pliers. And Jesus is the great physician. And he uses us because he wants the glory to redound to himself. Now, let's go to the second question. What did Jesus do for his men? We've seen who they were. What did he do for them? Well, he did three things. Number one, he chose them. He spent the night in prayer. He talked to God. I'm convinced God told him who to choose. Lord, should I choose Peter? He's kind of impetuous, Lord. Is he the one? 
Yes, my son, Peter is one. And he probably went through the list of disciples. One by one, the Lord gave him directions on who he was to choose. He comes down from that mountain and he calls to himself the ones that he himself had chosen. It was a sovereign choice, wasn't it? These men were not signing up for the job. They weren't volunteering. They weren't submitting their resume. Hey, Lord, I'd like to be on the list. None of that. It was Jesus' choice alone. And Jesus called them to himself. If you're a Christian, not only has God chosen to save you, God has also chosen to call you into his service. And he's going to use you in his service. In 1 Corinthians 12:11, the Bible says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, these different gifts of the Spirit, distributing to each one individually just as who wills? Just as he wills. If you've been given a gift by God, it came as a sovereign gift from the Holy Spirit to you. You had nothing to do with it. God decided to give you that gift. So it's the Lord who is the one who decides what role individuals will play in the body of Christ. And it's the Lord who decides what gifts will be distributed to each one throughout the body of Christ. He has chosen not only to save you, but He has chosen to use you within His church and within the world. And it's a sovereign choice that He makes. Our job is simply to discern, okay, what is my role, Lord? Well, how do you want to use me? Am I an evangelist? Am I a pastor? Am I a deacon? Am I none of the above, but am I just a committed church member? What gifts have you given me, Lord? Am I to be working with children, or with women, or with men, discipling men, what, or with, with uh, older children? Lord, what is the role that you've called me to? So to discern that role, and then to labor with all of our might, that we will hear, well done good and faithful servant at the end of our lives. So, number one, he chose them. Number two, he trained them. He trained them. Jesus knew he was going to die soon. And so, the closer he gets to the cross, the more and more does he leave the masses behind and start really pouring his life into these 12 men. Because he has to get them ready to take over when, he, when he's not there anymore. And so, the first thing he did is he chose them just to be with him just to sort of hang out with him, watch him. It was a master-apprentice type of relationship. Apprentice just kind of watches the master for a while. He sees how he makes that table leg and how he carves it and how he puts it together and glues it to the table. He just watches him. And then he starts to mimic and try to imitate what the master had done. That's how Jesus was doing this. He chose these guys just to be with him. They watched him heal the sick and cast out demons and teach the multitudes. And then what does he do? He sends them out to do the very same thing. He gives them authority over demons to heal the sick. He gives, gives them the gospel to preach. And he sends them out two by two to do that. And when they're done, they regroup. And Jesus says, well, how did it go? And they said, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. They give them a report. And Jesus gives some correction to them. Don't be so enamored by that. Be more enamored if your name is written in heaven. He gives them a little bit of correction, a little bit of teaching. But so he would, he would model for them. He would send them out to do what they had seen him do. He would teach and instruct them. And all of this was in preparation for the time that he would be gone. Now, the Lord is doing exactly the same thing for us. 
If he's chosen you to serve in his body, he's in the midst of training you. We get intimidated because we think, Lord, I could never do what you're calling me to do. You want me to be a witness? You want to talk to my neighbors about Christ? Lord, I, they're going to ask me questions and I'm not going to have the answer. I'm not equipped, Lord. I can't do it. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Here's one of the great benedictions in the New Testament. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and forever, forever and ever. Amen. So here is a prayer to the God and Father of Jesus Christ, that He would equip working in us that which we need to fulfill His call on our life. God will equip you. You need to trust Him. You need to step out in faith. If He calls you to talk to your neighbor about Jesus, say, okay, Lord, I'm stepping out of the boat. I'm stepping onto that water. I'm trusting you're going to hold me up. You'll give me what I need to say. And as you step out in faith, you will be amazed to find that He will meet you and give you what you need in that moment. So he's training his disciples. He chose them. He trained them. Number three, he sent them. After he had risen from the dead, it was these men that he sent out and he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. He who believes and is baptized is going to be saved. He who disbelieves is going to be condemned. Go. He sent them out. And do you know the word apostle? Do you know what it means? Sent one. There's two kinds of sent ones today. We have no apostles today that had the same kind of authority that the original 12 had. They had authority over the churches that they had planted. Today we have pastors that together rule and govern and shepherd the flock. We don't have apostles over those pastors telling them how they should do things. In the first century there were apostles planting the church and then giving direction to the early shepherds and then inscripturating that instruction through their letters. But today we do have apostles with a small a. We call them missionaries. They're sent ones sent on a mission. And there's two types of missionaries. There are foreign missionaries, and guess what the other type is? Local missionaries. And if God has not called you to leave your comfortable neighborhood and go to another country and go into another culture and learn their language and preach the gospel to them, guess what? He's called you to go to people right down the street. Every single Christian is a local or a foreign missionary. If you're not a foreign one, you're a local missionary. And our problem is we don't really believe that. And we don't see ourselves as having that identity. I want you to begin to inculcate this as your identity. Write it on your bathroom mirror. I am a missionary. How am I going to act like one today? We have to see ourselves the way God sees us. Jesus told his 11 apostles after he risen from the dead, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Jesus was sent as an apostle into this world, a sent one from heaven. Then Jesus takes these 11 and he sends them. Just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You're missionaries. You're sent ones. And we need to see that God has called us to be sent ones to people we live around, people we work around, people we go to school around, family, friends, anyone within our sphere of influence.
He sends us. And we are to proclaim His excellencies. And here at the bridge, we have groups where these missionaries gather on a weekly basis. And what do we call them? Missional communities. That's where we gather to sharpen our skills as missionaries and to pray for lost people and to instruct each other and to equip each other so that we can be all that God wants us to be. See, God has called you as a missionary, but not as a Lone Ranger missionary. He wants you to be missionaries along with a bunch of other missionaries that are going to help you and encourage you and inspire you and you them. So He chose them. He trained them. He sent them. And my message for you today is really, it boils down to this one sentence. God wants to use you. He wants to use you. He's called you if you're a Christian. He's training you. He sent you. Are you doing what He's called you to do? In this quiet moment, reflect a little bit. Okay, the Lord has called me to salvation. He's called me to service. What does He want you to be doing with your life? What are the gifts He's given you? What role has He called you to? And are you doing it? Have you heard of the acronym FAT? FAT Christians? F-A-T? Faithful, available, teachable? Does that describe you? Are you faithful? Are you doing what God's called you to do? Maybe it's to be a godly mother discipling your children and spending most of your energies there. If you have small little kids, that's probably where... Your energy is going to be being a godly mother and wife. Perhaps it's being a godly employee, being a person of integrity on the job. Uh, if you say one thing, you deliver. You do what you say you're going to do. You're not dishonest in any way. Maybe it's a faithful boss. Maybe it's a, a faithful student at college or school. So faithful to do and to be what God has called you to be and do. Available. It simply means that when the Lord tells you to do something, you're willing to drop whatever else you were doing and go do it. Nothing's more important than hearing His voice and doing His will. Are you available? If the Lord says, this is what I want you to do, are you available for Him to use? Or do you say, well, sorry, Lord, I'm kind of busy right now. You have to find somebody else. And then teachable. You don't think you know it all. You're humble enough that God can still teach you some things. You know that you don't know this Bible inside and out. You want to, but you don't. And so you're teachable. And other people can speak into your life. And you don't get offended and get, you know, get in a huff if someone tries to teach you something. You're willing to listen. Faithful. Available. Teachable. If we can cultivate those graces in our life, we're going to see God use us just as He used those first 11 men. You want that? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would You do that in our lives today? Take these precious saints here today and make them faithful, available, and teachable. Use them, Lord, just as You used Your first 11. How they shook the world for Christ and how they went on to die, all of them martyrs' deaths except for one. How they were willing to suffer. They're willing to go through trials if just Jesus would be exalted and glorified. So God, would you speak to your children today? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.